Well, this Sunday, we continue in our study of Romans chapter 9, a section of Romans that many people misunderstand, uh, and others just want to entirely skip over. It's not an easy passage of Scripture. Some people um, omit it entirely and uh, will just try to fly right past it. Others um, will actually take Romans 9 and, and kind of build it as the very center construct for their, all of their theology and interpret the rest of the Bible just um, according to Romans chapter 9. So we seek um, biblical balance in all things. Um, after mining the depths of Romans chapter 8, I actually considered um, cruising through Romans chapter 9 at the 10,000-foot level. Um, sometimes you can see kind of the big picture when you're up and, and, and you just kind of, you know, do one sermon on the whole chapter or something like that. But as I was talking with Bill Turner, wherever you are, Bill, I want to thank you. Um, where's Bill? Um, oh, hey, hey, there he is. All right. <laughs> um, well, Bill, thanks for this opportunity because, you know, Bill was like, hey, you know what? I've never actually preached through Romans 9. Uh, let's let's kind of zoom in a little bit more here and divide it up into smaller texts. And I really appreciate, Bill, you've done a fantastic job these last two weeks um, faithfully exegeting verses 6 through 18. So thank you for that. And uh, Bill gets the credit that we today get to really focus here on chapter 9, 19 through 29, some, uh, some difficult verses to, to properly understand. Um, but I'm excited because all of God's Word is inspired and authoritative and helpful uh, for us. Now, if you're just joining us this morning and you're not a regular uh, attender at Rocky, um, inside your um, worship guide or inside your, your bulletin that, that you saw out there this morning is a, um, is a kind of a little half sheet piece of paper here that's a, a worship guide that I hope will, will help you a little bit. I've, most of the passages I'm going to mention are here as well as the five um, parts of this message um, we're going to look at the background here again. I know Bill did a good job kind of walking us through the chapter so far, but I want to just zoom out for a moment and give you the background context for the chapter again. And then we're going to specifically look at the doctrine of election that we see here in our text. And then we're going to really zero in here, part three, the problem with the question that Paul presents that actually many people have had. And then we're going to look at briefly Part four, God's unseen eternal purposes. And then we're going to land the plane by looking at our response to the doctrine of election or um, something that I prefer to call the doctrines of grace. So let's start by looking at the background of this text. And you could say that Romans chapter 9 is Paul's theodicy or defense of God. That's what that word theodicy means. And so the context of Romans 9 is that Paul is defending the righteousness and the justice of God against those Jewish leaders who would accuse Paul's doctrine thus far as teaching that God had failed. Because their argument would be something like this. Hey, God called the Jews to be his chosen people. And so if most of the Jews are indeed as of yet unsaved, that is not trusting in Christ, that means God has failed in his mission. 
that make sense? That's the accusation that they're making. And so Paul responds to this charge in Romans 9 by saying, no, God has not failed. Well, why, why hasn't he failed? Well, first, there is a remnant then and now of Jews who are indeed saved and following after Jesus. And we're going to see as we go on that we look forward to a day in which many more will be saved and will bow before their Messiah. But remember, Paul himself and all of the 12 apostles were Jews. And there were other Jews who had come to see that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was the Savior and the Lord. And so Paul reminds uh, uh, us of this fact in the very last few verses of our text. So normally when we walk through a text together, we start at the top and just kind of walk through verse by verse to the end. But we're going to start from the bottom because that's when he, he kind of closes his argument with a quote from Isaiah. So look with me, if you will, if you still have Romans chapter 9 opened, and you can also see it here in the, in the listening guide. Uh, verses 27 through 29 of, of, of the chapter here in my Bible, which is akin to the Pew Bible. It's the very bottom of, of page 945 here, bottom right. Romans 9, 27 through 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of, as the, as the, sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. In other words, God is sovereign. And here he prophesied it back in Isaiah's time, that though from Abraham he's made this nation like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will truly be saved, and yet he's going to make sure that a remnant is saved. And then he quotes another passage of Isaiah, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If it weren't for the Lord's doing, we would be utterly destroyed because of our lack of, of uh, faith and fidelity. We're going to circle back and more on that at the very end of the message, verse 29. So the first reason that Paul argues that God did not fail if his theology in Romans, that if the gospel is true, is because God has indeed and is saying Jewish people. But secondly, God's plan from the beginning was to call out a people whom Paul calls the children of promise, to be spiritual descendants of Abraham, from not only physical Israel, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In other words, from both Jews and Gentiles. And aren't you glad that was God's plan? From the very beginning, not just a secondary thought after failure of, in the Old Testament. No, from the very beginning, this was God's plan. So let's look at verses 23 through 26. So again, we're, we're working from the bottom of our text up. Romans chapter 9, verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Indeed, as he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. 
And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, maybe you've studied Hosea, or maybe you haven't. Um, Hosea was a minor prophet, um, and whom the Lord used to call out um, sin and unfaithfulness of his people Israel. And, and, and in doing that, God gave Hosea a very strange, what might seem strange to us, mission. Okay, he, he, he told Hosea to go marry uh, a prostitute named Gomer, who um, Hosea said, I, I'm gonna take you and you will be my wife. You'll be, I'm gonna be faithful to you, you'll be faithful to me. And then she was not. And so this was a picture of God's long-suffering mercy with his people Israel. And you could say by extension, us. <laughs> uh, how often do we fail? Are we faithless to the Lord? And so God gave um, Gomer three children by Hosea. And the daughter, who was his second child, was named lo Ruhama, which meant not loved. Can you imagine giving your daughter that name, not loved? And then he had a son, a thirdborn, and his name was Lo-Ami, which meant not my people. Can you, can you imagine that? And, and so that all happened within the context of Hosea, and yet Hosea ends with this promise that though they be unfaithful, one day God would take her who was considered not my loved and I will make you beloved. And him who was not my people and I will call him the son of the living God. So God is all about redemption. He promised to redeem a remnant from his own Old Testament people, Israel, and for us, the church today, made up of Jews and Gentiles, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, he, he has made us, though there's nothing in us that deserved it, his child. He has adopted us into his family and, and loved us because of his grace. So God is all about redemption. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. So that's the context here of Romans chapter 9, Paul's defense of God, no God indeed has not failed. So let's look at part two, the doctrine of election. So you see here, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles, all those who would be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, ultimately are saved according to God's sovereign plan. In other words, Paul's defense of God in Romans chapter 9 is based on the doctrine of election. That is, that before the very beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world, before God created our planet and created mankind, God chose exactly whom he would save. That's what we see is the whole, um, the whole backdrop for Romans 9, and it's taught explicitly here in Romans chapter 9. In fact, in Romans 9, 10 through 13, which we looked at um, the week before last, Jacob represents the children that God calls, adopts, 
and saves, and Esau represents those folks who scorn Christ and who remain the enemies of God. Pastor Bill reminded us that neither Jacob nor Esau nor all of the people that these two brothers represent were worthy in themselves of salvation. Remember, both Jacob and Esau were scoundrels, both of them. And the text makes it eminently clear. Let's, let's look back and read verse 10 through 13 of Romans chapter 9, that it, it was not because of anything they did. They did not merit their salvation. It was only God's sovereign grace in choosing Jacob. So we read in verse 10 of Romans chapter 9, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, before we get started talking uh, a little more in depth about the doctrine of election, we must acknowledge that there is mystery here. Why, why did God choose Jacob instead of Esau? I mean, you know, Bill reminded us that, that Esau was the firstborn. So the conventional or the traditional fact is Esau was a manly man while Jacob was kind of a wuss, right? So why, why would God, and frankly, I'll be honest with you, read the Old Testament, God likes manly, manly men, right? I mean, he likes David and, and you know, he doesn't, so, so why, why, why did God go after Jacob instead of Esau? I mean, J Jacob was a conniver, a liar, a deceiver. That's, that's how he got ahead, right? Um, he was a vindictive fellow. Of course, Esau was a, a loser as well. <laughs> um, uh, we could go on talking about Esau. Um, well, it was, it, it's a mystery. That's the bottom line. Why did God choose one instead of the other? I, Isaiah 58, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we, we don't know why God chose to work and, and, and actually have the line of Christ work through Jacob instead of Esau. Those are his thoughts. That's the counsel of the Lord that we leave in that place. And I will say there is mystery to the doctrine of election and, and um, we must be humble in acknowledging that fact. Now, there are a number of reasons why folks, in fact, probably most of us have at one point, if, and maybe even right now, you're struggling with this biblical doctrine of election. Maybe, maybe the biggest reason why folks struggle with the doctrine of election uh, is people who believe in it, right? Maybe you've had a bad experience with people who pompously relish in this doctrine, sometimes misusing it even to justify a lack of love for other people. Um, you ever met a fatalistic Christian who kind of you know, it's kind of like inshallah, like our, our Muslim friends, right? You know, it's kind of like, well, hey, God's going to save whom he wants to save. And those he doesn't, he's not. So it doesn't matter what we do. We don't have any responsibility to take the gospel. Sit down, Mr. Carey. Well, there are some of those fatalists and elitists 
Folks who'd rather just sit around in their library and, and kind of congratulate each other for being the elect, right? And, and have no concern for the lost. And then there's plenty who just use this kind of theology to justify loveless Christian laziness. So the biggest problem with Calvinism is probably Calvinists, right? And, and, and so um, maybe you've just had some bad run-ins with hyper-Calvinists. I think another reason that sometimes at first glance, the doctrine of election doesn't seem to match our own life experiences and our own testimonies even. You know, may, maybe you were born in a Christian family and you, you, you heard the gospel uh, growing up, uh, or maybe not. You know, maybe your testimony is, hey, I was, you know, I was out there rabble-rousing, ready to split hell right open. And then one day I heard the gospel and it made sense that I was a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. And I, I decided to follow Jesus. I looked at the trajectory of my life. I realized that I was, I was heading straight to hell. Uh, a life, I was causing plenty of destruction in this life as well. And I decided to put my faith in Jesus Christ. And so when you hear that, wait a minute, no, actually, yes, you did decide, but actually it's because he chose you first. And it, 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 you became like, man, how does that work exactly? Right? I mean, how does the sovereignty of God work with the will of man? I'll just go back to mystery. Uh, God, God does think, God, God's bandwidth is way wider than ours, right? Um, I remember going, doing a deep dive on that question with a professor, of, uh, a, um, a theology professor in, at Southern Seminary. And we were looking at stuff that this monk had come up with on middle knowledge. And I mean, it was a deep dive of the compatibility of God's sovereignty and man's volitional will. And, and you know, looking at freedom of, of libertarian freedom of the will or freedom of inclination and all this philosophic stuff. And I finally had to say respectfully, sir, I don't think you really know what you're talking about. Um, we, none of us do. The secret things belong to God. Um, he is higher than we are. Um, even if you cannot reconcile fully in your own mind uh, two parallel truths that the Bible teaches, um, God has just got band wider bandwidth than we do. And let's just submit to humbly to the word of God. So those are two reasons, bad experiences, right, with Calvinists or hyper-Calvinists. And then also sometimes, hey, you know, it's just hard to understand how all this actually works out in our own life experience. But, you know, in almost every conversation I've had with somebody who was struggling with the doctrine of election, the question has popped up. If God chooses some and not others to be saved, how can God be fair? Well, Paul addressed this question back in verse 14, which Pastor Bill dealt with last week. Um, in verse 14, Paul just asks, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. <laughs> and, and then he goes on, he talks about, uh, he talks about um, uh, Pharaoh and, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna loop back to that here in a little while. But, um, you know, our text this morning begins with a rephrasing of that question, of that very question, is God fair? And so uh, that, that's, we're, we're at part three now, if you're following along in, in your notes 
the problem with the question. Paul amplifies that question in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So this is even a tougher, more aggressive way of putting it, okay? If God decrees before the foundation of the world who will be saved, why does God blame those who don't believe in Jesus? Is God fair? Well, again, my answer would be that the question itself has a critical problem, has a big problem, a big, a big presupposition within it. Because the question assumes that all people are worthy of salvation. Okay? It assumes that people are basically good. And so that God, you know, we're cuddly. God should just love us. Right? Um, people are basically good, and so God should save all of us if you really did the right thing. It, it assumes that you and I were not or are not rebels against a holy God. It assumes that God is love but not truly holy and just. It presumes that God should actually grade humanity on a curve, and if he's really gracious, he should just kind of let everybody in at the end of the day, Every, or most people, right? And so it, 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 there's actually a slippery slope here towards universalism. Well, is God fair? Well, my answer is no, he's not fair. If you believe the Bible... And if you've been carefully paying attention to the book of Romans thus far, God would be fair if he sent us all to hell. That's the only thing that would be fair. You believe that? Like, whoa. I mean, that's very countercultural, let's just say. Okay. Um, Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one man i i don't i i love fireworks by the way we man we, we we went to the fireworks last night in my dad's boat and uh there was some great music you know kind of a compilation I, what i noticed they, they tried they brought a little hip-hop in they brought a little like you know uh big band music but it, the reflexive nature of the music just went back to country which is just fine with me okay um and, and, but there was a song as we pulled up into Boggy Bayou in my dad's boat last night. There was a song going on that was just all about how mankind's basically good, you know, and Jesus is the way. And, and, and I'm like, you know, I'm not quite sure about the theology of that song we're listening to. Not all country music's got great theology. Um, or actually uh, is exactly, uh, consists, I'm sure Paul would absolutely love the, the, the melody, right? And the, you know, the very high form of art that is country music, but some of the lyrics he would have issue with um, uh, because nobody is good, he says. Left to ourselves, we are rotten. We, nobody seeks after God left to themselves. Everybody's gone their own way, right? As the prophet of old said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to his own, his own way. And Paul continues his thought in, in Romans 3 and says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, God is good and glorious even. And, and his goodness and his holiness cannot tolerate us left in our natural state of, of sin. And Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That means what we deserve 
is death, is damnation, is eternal spiritual death. So all human beings, except for Jesus Christ, who was truly human, the one exception, who never sinned, all of us deserve eternal damnation. Jesus was the one who took it on the cross, the wrath of God in our, in our place. So the, the real question isn't, why doesn't God save everyone? But why did God save me? Why did God save you? Because we're no better than anybody else. We're all in the same boat, theologically. So that's my argument. No, God isn't fair. You got a big problem with the question. Um, fair would be we all go to hell, God is gracious. That's my answer. But that's not Paul's first argument. That's implied in some of his illustrations. But Paul's response to the question, is God fair, is, is this. He actually chooses to answer the question less philosophically and more at a heart level. Here's his answer, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, Paul's reminding us that we're the creation. God has ownership rights, so he, he gets to do whatever he wants. We don't have a right as the creator or as the creation to critique our creator, our maker. Pastor Kent Hughes uh, put it this way. He said, tiny man whose life is just a breath, whose history proves over and over that despite all his learning and technological triumphs, he repeatedly makes colossal errors and falls into unspeakable barbarisms. This puny man stands before the God who knows the end from the beginning, who has never learned anything because he knows everything, who is the perfection of wisdom and love and talks back to him. How absurd. So that's, that's Paul's response. Now, maybe there's something in the back of your heart and in mind that doesn't really like that too much. But that's the reality of the situation. Now, now Paul goes on to, to illustrate, and I want to say this. I think there's a difference between a how dare you God, fist in the air, and a probing mind that's really trying to understand. Okay? That, that's really trying to understand some complexity, okay? And so um, Paul gives us an ancient illustration of, of the potter and the clay. When I first read this, uh, and I mean, I've read this many, many times, my, my mind went to Genesis chapter two, God making Adam out of the ground, right? Out of the, du the dust or the dirt, out of the clay, as it were. And certainly we see there, God has ownership rights, but then as I study this out a little bit deeper, I realized that, that actually Paul's going back to an illustration that we find in the Old Testament, both in Isaiah 45, 9, and in Jeremiah 18, 1 through 10, that show more God's forming and using of people for his purpose, and God's even using of nations for his purpose. In other words, God has already made the clay. We are the clay, and it's up to God how he chooses to use us. Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at verse 21 and uh, 22 and verse 23. 
Verse 21 says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Remember, as as one scholar put it, dishonor is the natural state of the clay. So we are clay. That's the metaphor here. All human beings, we are clay. We are born in sin. So we're breathing, we're living, uh, we're living in sin. And before the Lord, in comparison to his holiness, we are dishonorable. We have all rebelled against God and we've loved every minute of it according to our own fallen wills. I mean, we, we do choose to sin and we like it a lot, right? Now it hurts us, but, but we can't help but sin as, as rebels against the Lord. But God graciously takes some clay vessels, those who trust in Christ. He he takes some clay vessels like us, those who are believers, or in other parts of the Bible, it uses the term elect as a synonym, okay, for true believers. And God beautifully shapes us into beautiful vessels. Other clay vessels that God leaves in their state of clay right? He doesn't make them into bone china. Other vessels that, re- that, that rebel against him that he chooses to allow to remain in their rebellious state are still sovereignly used by God according to their own dishonorable desires, but still for his purpose. Vessels like Pharaoh that we looked at with Pastor Bill last Weak. And so this leads us into the fourth part of this message, and that is God's unseen eternal purposes. In other words, God has greater and eternal purposes that we don't always get to see. Sometimes we do. Many times we don't in this lifetime, uh, but we will one day see this master tapestry that he was sovereignly working out. So let's, let's look at verse 22 and 23. And as I read these verses, I want you to compare them because there is a distinction here that I, that I hope you pick up on, okay? Uh, that in regards to um, the preparation of destruction and glory. So I want you to look at the, the difference between these two. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience ra- vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, so first of all, we're going to look at his eternal purposes in a moment. But first of all, notice the difference in the verbiage between prepared for destruction and which he has prepared beforehand for glory. It's very clear that the vessels of mercy, God has prepared them beforehand, like before the foundations of the world for glory, right? Here, it's very clear that God is the one who did the preparing. Well, well, who prepares the vessels for destruction? Is that God or is it the vessels themselves? Note that it does not here say that God is the one who has prepared the vessels for destruction. Now, there are those who believe in double predestination, 
who, who have kind of read that into the text. But I want to point out to you that the text does not say that. In fact, it makes a great distinction in the original language between prepared and whom he has prepared beforehand for glory. So whenever we come upon a, a, a scripture text that seems a little bit obtuse, um, within the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, what we do is we go to other texts that are very clear. And so you interpret the more obtuse text with the clear text. And James is eminently clear that God is righteous, he hates evil, and he tempts no one to sin. Okay? Um, James 1, 13 through 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So how does it work here? Let's think about Pharaoh for a moment. We're going to talk a little bit more about Pharaoh in a, in a, in a second here. Um, Paul brings Pharaoh up in the verses preceding as an example of God's sovereignty in election. And it actually says in, in verse... Um, 17, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that all the, all that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But when you look back in the Exodus account, you see that both God and Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Book of Exodus says it both ways. So how did that work exactly? Well, actually, Romans 1 tells us. It tells us that and it describes the way that God hardens people's hearts. And that's by not tempting them to sin or forcing them to sin, but by simply removing himself from man and giving man what he wants. Remember Romans 1, verse 24 through 25 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Dr. Everett Harrison, uh, New Testament scholar, wrote a great commentary on Romans, wrote this uh, on this text here. He said, God's patience in bearing with the objects of his wrath suggests a readiness to receive such on condition of repentance. So prepared for destruction designates a ripeness of sinfulness that points to judgment unless there is a turning to God, yet God is not made responsible for the sinful condition. The preparation for destruction is the work of man who allows himself to deteriorate in spite of knowledge and conscience. And yet, man's sin never gets in the way of God's sovereign purposes. We see God's greater glory in his sovereign use of vessels that reject him. That would be vessels of wrath that reject him for his purposes. So God's, and what Paul is saying here is that God's mercy and his deliverance of vessels of, of mercy shine out all the brighter against the backdrop of his wrath against vessels who have prepared themselves for destruction. And the prime example of that would be Pharaoh. 
whom God sovereignly used to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power in ancient history that we looked at last week. In fact, one writer put it this way. He said, Pharaoh became an international illustration of God's supremacy. Kent Hughes, Pastor Kent Hughes, put it this way. He said, in truth, God gave Pharaoh opportunity to repent, but Pharaoh resisted God and therefore hardened himself to divine rule. Sunlight melts ice, but hardens clay. God was not unrighteous with Pharaoh. He gave him repeated opportunities to believe. The point is God is sovereign and acts according to his own will and purposes. He is perfectly just for he is God. Well, there's a, there's a lot there, brothers and sisters, but the bottom line is that God is entirely sovereign over all things, including saving your soul and saving mine. And I'm so thankful because the truth is that if, if God did not love me first, I would continue to choose destruction over Jesus. He gets all the glory for my salvation. Now let's just look at verse 29 here, the very last, very last verse in this text once again. And I want you to just see that. I want you to just see God's sovereignty here. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, we would have rejected him entirely and we would have been wiped out. So the words are so true uh, of, of the song, all I have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. If the Lord left us to our own desires, if he didn't first choose us, if he didn't elect us by his grace, we would daily, continually choose destruction. So this leads us to our last point here this morning, and that is our response. How should we live then in light of the doctrines of grace? How should we respond to this doctrine of election? Well, the first is gratitude. God would be just to just leave us all as clay, vessels of dishonor, clay pots to be destroyed. He, he would have every right to do that, so we must marvel at his grace. And let's be sure to worship him out of gratitude. Second, humility. We, we need a lot of humility. Um, if we're going to survive these days as Christians, we need a lot of humility. Um, God gets all the glory for our salvation. He didn't just provide the means. He did. He gave us the cross, right? He gave us Jesus on the cross. But he didn't just provide the means of salvation so that we could, according to our own illumination and our own smarts, choose him, right? Because we got a little more good than evil. Uh, in our hearts or whatever. No, God saved us while we were dead in our trespasses and sin. His, his spirit illumined us, illumined us, shined the light of his grace in our hearts so that we would respond in repentance and faith. And so he gets all the glory. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and, that, and, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody may boast. I am not a Christian because I am any smarter or any more righteous or any better than anybody else. And frankly, left to myself, there's nothing that anyone has done that I couldn't do. He gets all the glory. So there's gratitude, there's humility, but there's also security. There's security, brothers and sisters. Now, the Bible says we should, we should test ourselves, we should examine ourselves to make sure that our faith is genuine and real. But brother and sister, there is great security in Christ that comes from the doctrines of grace. We can rest in his grace because our salvation doesn't depend on ourselves our own works of righteousness or even our own inherent ability to muster up faith right enough faith to believe or even to continue believing that that's a gift from him and so there is great security in believing this doctrine of god's grace so i i hope you never fret over the question am i elect you know, there's some folks who kind of fall into this uh, hamster wheel of, of questioning. Well, you know, hey, if, if God didn't elect me, then there's nothing I can do. That's not how the Bible presents it. Okay, in fact, I would say that genuine concern is an evidence of faith. Genuine concern. Not, I, do have, I do know people who, who put off their unbelief on God. And they say, well, it's up to him. If he wants to save me, he can do it. Uh, and, and, you know, it's fatalism once again. The Bible, Jesus said, all, all that the Father comes to me, right? Um, all the Father gives to me will come to me. Uh, and, and he who comes to me, I will never cast out. And so there is great security. I, I, I would say in counseling people, if you're really worried about, man, am I really a believer? Uh, I want to be a believer. Am I really saved? You know what? That, the, the, the opposite of faith is just a cold, indifferent heart. Um, often that questioning, that earnest questioning, I find to be evidence of genuine faith. And Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Finally, there's gospel witness. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Believing that God is sovereign actually compels and motivates me to get out there and share the gospel, knowing that, that I, don't have to, I don't have to twist an arm or have the greatest argument that no one could ever refute and, and win the chess game, and then they'll just say checkmate and become a Christian. All I have to do is honestly present the gospel. I can point people to Jesus and, and trust his spirit to convict and to believe that he sovereignly is orchestrating my path into the paths of others that he is going to save. So, the doctrines of grace is a great impetus for world evangelism, as well as sharing the gospel with your neighbor. Let's, uh, let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we testify this morning that your ways are higher than our ways. And Lord, that there is nothing worthy in us. We thank you for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And Lord, we thank you for choosing us, not because of our worthiness, but because of your grace. Lord, we, we pray that you would use us um, for your will to, to bring many people 
to Christ. And I pray if there's anyone in this room that does not know Jesus, Lord, that today would be the day that you would draw their heart to saving faith in him. In his great name we pray. Amen.